0: Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Fifth Element. This episode was a commission from longtime patron Mark Lush. With us is Neil Taylor, the kid dog on YouTube, the longest of long-time friends of this show.
1: Super green. Super green.
0: Uh, this, this movie, The Fifth Element, turned 20 years old in 2017, which is the time... Oh! Sharon's got oh. her head in her hands. Oh, I
1: feel so oh. old. <laughs> I saw this at the cinema. So did I. <laughs> And it was great. One of
0: my films of that year. And still to me remains the pinnacle of Luc Besson's career as a visionary filmmaker intent on presenting and representing us with slender, fragile white girls who come up against adversity and prove more powerful than their oppressors. It was a story and a world that he began writing when he was a boy, inspired by comics like Valerian and Heavy Metal and movies like Blade Runner and Heavy Metal. In fact, it's kind of the light flip side to Ridley Scott's dark cyberpunk noir classic because in 200 years time according to this like yeah if you want to read into the 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 world that we can see in the fifth element war among humans will be all but eliminated we live together on this earth as one intermingled people and casually chart the stars and interact with other alien species It would be a utopian paradise if we weren't all still smoking and living in little box homes, oppressed periodically by sloppy, brutish police, harangued by petulant computer voices, and obsessed with annoying, shrill celebrities. We'd be fine if humans weren't so willfully crappy to the core. Which is kind of the theme of this movie. All that said, it is a deeply hopeful and inspiring vision of a world that moves in cycles, muddled and foolish, but real. A space-age biblical parable with a bit of Indiana Jones and Die Hard thrown in to spice things up. It's also quite... it's really divisive. This is one of the films that Mark Kermode himself has, has, has said. that, like, It splits the room down the middle. There's people who loathe this film, people who love this film. And uh, Mikey from uh, Movies with Mikey um, said that it was the one film that people just kept demanding and demanding. he do. And uh, so I, I, I'm fairly certain that kind of qualifies as a cult following. Like, uh, it has its appreciators. I think part of a cult following is that you have to feel like you got it when other people didn't.
2: Yeah. It's got to be weird enough that it put quite a lot of people off when it yeah. first came out.
0: Spider-Man Homecoming, for example, could never be a cult movie, even though it didn't do fantastically at the box office and neither did Fifth Element.
2: Through a glass darkly, however. Uh, sorry, through a scanner, scanner
0: Just It's just called A Scanner Darkly. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, you can, make, you can call that a cult film, easily. To call the film a visual feast is an understatement and an insult to both visuals and feasts. It cost 90 million to make and it scored 263 million at the box office, which is small potatoes in context of modern blockbusters. But it still did a ton better than this year's return to the space opera for Luc Besson, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which disappointed me greatly, cost twice as much, 180 million, and made only 225. So that's a lot lower of a multiplier. There's some production notes here, which really kind of were, were, were quite arresting. I'm going to regurgitate a bit of um, uh, Wikipedia all over you guys because it's interesting and it will it will affect what we say about it. Also, Sharon and I just watched Wonder Woman again, and my God, that that's basically a film that tells the exact same story but just a million miles better. And my God, do women have more agency in it? Okay. So, as a teenager, Luc Besson envisioned the world in The Fifth Element in a, in a, as an attempt to alleviate boredom. He began writing the script when he was 16, though it was not released in cinemas until he was 38. The original storyline was set in the year 2300. It was about a nobody named Zoltman Blairos. By the way, that was the name of the story, Zoltman Blairos, for years. He later renamed the guy Corbin Dallas. Uh, who wins a trip to the Club Med Resort. You know, this is so written in the 80s. The Club Med Resort on the planet of fluston and Paradise. Then he meets Lilu, a sand girl, who has the beauty of youth despite being over 2,000 years old. Besson continued to work on and modify the story for years. By the time his documentary film Atlantis was released in 1991, he had a 400-page script. So that's a film with a 400-page script. This is one of those, okay, dude, edit. Edit like crazy. Cut up, edit, boil it down, edit some more. Is Nick- it page a minute? Yeah, it's page a minute. That's, uh, that's no. insane. Nicolas Sadou and Patrick Ledoux from Gaumont were the first people to, to take on the project. In November 91. while looking for actors to the film, Besson met, met, met French comics creator Jean Girard and Jean-Claude Meziere rec- and recruited them for the film's production design. Girard and Meziere's comics were a major source of inspiration for Besson's futuristic New York City, so that would be like... Mezière's, is the uh, creator of Valerian and Lower Lyon, And, and have, so
2: Did he have something to do with Tintin as well?
0: Yeah, Tintin, it would appear. Re- Meziere wrote, wrote his book The Circles of power which contains a character named uh, Satrax who drives a flying taxi cab through the congested air traffic of the vast metropolis in the planet Rubanus Mezier showed images of the flying taxi to Besson, by the way um, Blade Runner as we established was kind of inspired by these same comics so it's like they, Besson went back to the source with this Messier showed images of the flying test de Besson, who was inspired to change the background of Corbin Dallas from a worker in a rocket ship factory to a taxi driver who flies his cab around a urbanist inspired futurist in New York City. Five other in- uh, uh, artists were hired for the project, and Jean-Paul Gaultier was hired to design the film's costumes. The oh, team- yes, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, um, folks in the 90s, who, folks approaching 40 or in their 40s m- may remember, if they're British, Euro trash uh, on oh, Channel yes. 4 late nights. That was great fun. Uh, always uh, always good for a giggle And uh, yeah Jean-Paul Gaultier Was also uh, He was big in the 90s There was a lot of Gaultier fashion And Gaultier scent In various men's magazines And things I remember was
2: People knocking around FHM
0: we do at the time
2: uh, Exterior corsets
0: Yeah uh, We'll talk about his fashion um, In a bit Because it's Wow Um So the team spent a year creating over 8,000 drawings, during which time their son approached both Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson for the lead role. Could you imagine Gibson as Corbin Dallas? No, It would definitely feel a lot worse now, wouldn't it? I mean... Yeah. Bruce Willis is a a miserable, grumpy old bald turtle now, but at least he's not Mel Gibson. (laughs) Mm, Yes.
2: Mel Gibson occupies a future world where everything's stripped out and burned down and... Yeah, he's
0: Mad Max already. He
2: is, yeah. Yeah. He's not going to work in
0: this environment. Right. Nothing but respect for my Mad Max. He's not my Mad Max anymore. And <laughs> He's not my uh,
1: Mad Max either. Uh, Willis <laughs> ex- <That's Shirley> Theron.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, Willis expressed interest, though he was reluctant to take on the role uh, as the film was considered risky after his previous two films, Hudson Hawk and Billy Bathgate, had been received poorly.
1: Okay, Billy Bathgate, yeah, it's not very
0: good. I love Hudson Hawk. I know, but it didn't make him money and it, it got him a lot of um, uh, criticism. And Bruce Willis hates criticism. Yeah yeah of <laughs> he any like kind directors either yeah uh, Gibson eventually turned down the role. While the team impressed film companies with their designs, they struggled to find one willing to take on the film's budget at almost $100 million. In December 92, production of the film stopped without any prior warning, and the team disbanded. Now, to put this in perspective, this is before Leon came out. That's the professional Americans. Uh, Beston wow. went to direct the commercially successful Leon, which was released in September 94. While shooting and releasing Leon, he continued to work on the script for The Fifth Element, shortening it and reducing... See, at this time... Willis was kind of like he was floundering in the early mid-90s because he'd done Die Hard 1 and 2 and then he'd done, you know, Colour of Light and Striking Distance and Billy Bathgate and Hudson Hawk. It wasn't really until Tarantino came back with uh, him in Pulp Fiction that it was like, and then Die Hard 3 came out, that it was like suddenly Bruce Willis is back and in charge. So it's almost like they could probably have got him then a lot cheaper <laughs> than they got him in '96. In
1: I know, I'm just flicking through sort of just where he was in his, his career. It's 94 for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, but before that, Striking Distance, which is not good. Yeah. Legend Weapon, uh, which is just cameo, but Death Becomes, which I quite liked, and the last yeah. Boy Scouts is in there.
0: I, it Honestly, Bruce Willis doing comedy is sometimes really good, if it's the right comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm black comedy specifically I, I also yes. especially, especially like that film because he is very self-effacing in that he's like he's not an action guy he's not sexy at all he's you know pathetic and wormy and snivelly and, and made to look and sound very unattractive and, uh, and you know, frankly so are um, Mel Streep and uh, Goldie Horn, who uh, both look beautiful and behave in the most ugly of fashions uh, Besson was at in Barry Josephson's office when Willis called regarding a different film Besson asked to speak to Willis just to say hello and told him The Fifth Element was finally going ahead explaining a decision to go with a less expensive actor after a short silence Willis stated uh, you know if I like the film we can always come to an." that doesn't sound like Bruce Willis I like the film Oh, get out to the cars, we'll get together, have a few laughs. We can always come to an arrangement. He agreed to take the role after reading the script. Production of the film commenced in August 95. Best on travel to various places for casting, including Paris, London, Rome. Hired Gary Oldman, who'd started Leon for the role of Zork. Describing Oldman as one of the top five actors in the world. At the time, I think that's accurate.
1: Yeah. I, he is thoroughly unlikable in Leon, but... Yeah immensely watchable
0: Uh, he's still great now but uh, we've just had so many more like really fantastic actors Um, emerge in the past 20 years
1: if you want to see him doing his full I'm trying for an Oscar his Churchill movie is bloody awesome oh great okay
0: uh, for the character of Lilu, Besson chose Mila Jovovich from the 200 to 300 applicants he met in person. The divine language spoken in the film by Lilu is a fictional language with only 400 words invented by Besson. Jovovich and Besson held conversations and wrote letters to each other in the language as practice. Besson was in a relationship with Maywen Lebosko, who played the role of the diva. Although she didn't play her voice, she was basically the diva's body. Plava Laguna, for six years when filming commenced, however, he left her for Jovovich during filming. (laughs) Jovovich and Besson later married, but divorced in
1: 1999. Yeah, because isn't she now married to... Mr WS uh,
0: Anderson, who puts her on screen all the time.
1: In those terrible Resident Evil films. Honestly,
0: um, it feels like The Fifth Element was the film that got the Resident Evil crowd to say, "Yes, we like seeing Mila Jovovich kicking ass. We want to see it again and again and again and again and again and again." And that, thus, basically, like that's that's defined her career, really. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the,
2: those two things, yeah, I would say. It definitely. wasn't
0: Joan of Arc, uh, The Messenger. It, was, it wasn't was uh, Cuffs. It was um, The Fifth hey, Element. Hey, leave Cuffs alone.
2: I'm not saying it's a bad film, but the that role did not define her career.
0: <laughs> Wishing to shoot the film in France, Besson could not find suitable facilities with a heavy heart. He filmed in London. It was primarily filmed at Pinewood Studios. Oh, with a heavy heart, we went to Pinewood Studios, one of the most prestigious studios (laughs) in the freaking world. You know, where they filmed Alien and Aliens and Star Wars. And James Bond include the 007 stage. Construction sets began in October 95. The opera scene was filmed at the Royal Opera House. Filming with actors began in late January and was completed 21 weeks later. Willis finished filming on the 16th of May, while Oldman only commenced filming the following week. The film's protagonist Corbin and antagonist Zorg, never actually share screen time. So literally, Willis Willis was like, Bye! And then Gary Oldman came in. And the only thing I learned from the crappy VFX uh, commentary It's rubbish. If you want to just listen to some people who don't care that much, listen to the VFX commentary. And that made me sad, because I love the effects in this film. Um, the only thing that I learned was, as soon as Bruce Willis left, so did Kraft Services, and the food got shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, the talent's gone. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Oldman. Okay, the talent's gone. Right,
0: who wants cheese and pickle sandwiches?
1: <laughs> Gary's got you know to what?
0: have his first.
1: <laughs> you know what, them filming in London makes me realise why Lee Evans appears in this film. Randomly, That
0: makes sense, actually. Like, I suppose he was mooching around. He was a creeping kid on set. And they were like, it's, hey, Lee Evans, you're in. Was he that, I think
1: Lee Evans was that big a name at that point, was
0: he? He was big enough for me to go, oh, Lee Evans, it, when I first saw him. He it.
2: was always bigger as a comedian to me than he hmm. was as an actor. The only thing I'd ever seen him in other than this was um, Mouse Hunt. And wasn't he in an episode of Doctor Who? Uh,
0: maybe. Um, this was way before Who Too as uh, Neil called it mm. um, all I remembered Lee Evans for when I saw this film was uh, for, for Wild he'd
1: done yeah. um, Funny Bones before this oh. which is actually quite good
0: okay Uh, I actually like him in Mouse Hunt. I haven't seen the remake of The Producers, but he's exactly right in Mouse Hunt up against Nathan Lane. Despite being filmed in London, The Fifth Element was a French production and went on to become the costliest European film ever made at the time. The buildings in New York were derived from both metabolist-inspired masses of modular apartments from the 60s and futuristic designs of the architect Antonio Centella in the 1910s. Besson demanded that most of the action shots in the film take place in broad daylight as he was reportedly tired of the dark spaceship corridors and dimly lit planets common in science fiction films. In the 90s, I completely understand that, actually.
1: Uh, uh, You know what, even now I can say, you know what, Yeah, yeah, that, yeah,
0: And he wanted a brighter, cheerfully crazy look, uh, as opposed to a gloomy, realistic one. Gautier designed every one of the 900 costumes worn by extras in the film's Flost and Paradise scenes and checked each costume every morning. His designs, described as intellectually transgressive, were said to challenge sexuality and gender norms. A single jacket he designed for the film cost $5,000.
2: <laughs> you know, you Ouch. can challenge sexuality and gender norms for, like a lot less than that.
0: Whose jacket are we talking here? Was it Zorg's when he's in his office or was it Willis's when he goes to the airport? The one with the no sleeves. Did, and did how much said... did Ruby's dress-type top thing cost? Well, yeah. that's true. I mean,
2: what they don't tell you is that the the, the material only costs $50. <laughs>
0: Jean-Paul <laughs> Gaultier's
2: fee was $5,400. I think for this
0: one, it will cost... throws uh, a dart and a dartboard. Oh, 5000 <laughs> <laughs> The original name of the character would be... I don't need to say this next bit. Um, I I
2: quite like that bit, actually.
0: What? Okay. Um,
2: uh, The original name of the character was Lock Rod... Um, and uh, and he has that name in the original script and in the novelization of the film um, and there's a rumor that the name change was a play on information in the periodic table uh, the period 5 elements
0: oh this is reading so much into it the Come
2: first on. well the first one is rubidium mm-hmm. and halfway down that row is rhodium hence ruby rod
0: so, what's most likely is that uh, Luc Besson was in a room that just happened to have a periodic table and he sort of went, right, two darts. for bump, for pump Right, we'll call him Ruby Rod. Others have speculated his name as a play on his gender-bending personality, having a feminine first name and a phallic surname. The term Ruby Rod also refers to the essential component of the first working laser design.
2: And all the microphones look like Ruby Rods, as do the antennas on the phones.
0: Uh, the, yeah. the Diva dance opera performed used music from Gaetano Donizetto's Lucia di Lemmermoor, and the particular part was uh, the Il Dolce Sueno, which I actually listened to earlier today on uh, YouTube, and the Diva does it better. Uh, It it feels so intrinsic to the film because they've woven elements of that score into the surrounding... Moments, so that it feels like it was there all the time. It's got a 72% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is actually probably higher than it would get these days. That's not actually as divisive as half and half as as you might imagine. Uh, also, Chris Tucker's performance as Ruby Rod also polarized critics. He was praised in the Los Angeles Times, uh, the and and in Time, Time Magazine called him the summer's most outrageous special effect. Josh Winning of Games Radar, however, singled out Tucker's performance as the low point of the film, ranked it as number 20 in his 211 and list fifty performances that ruined movies.
2: I think it probably wouldn't do as well on Rotten Tomatoes these days, primarily because um, I think it would—they'd be drawing from more reviewers, and I think I can see how mainstream reviewers would not take to this.
1: Yeah. It's kind of funny, because when Ruby turned up in the film, for the first couple of minutes, he was really, really irritating the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. But actually, I kind of warmed to it by the end. It was like, no, I'm actually liking it. I was quite impressed with the way Chris Tucker was able to deliver that kind of performance at that speed which can't have been easy.
2: I think for me what makes him appealing is the fact that he maintains that persona no matter what's going on. You never get the impression that this is just something he puts on for the show and then he suddenly becomes incredibly normal. That's him. That is genuinely him. But
0: I don't say anything because it's Ruby Rod. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's Kevin Smith's Prince story, which I honestly recommend everyone track down on the the first Kevin Smith uh, audience with uh, performance.
3: And she's like... Kevin, let me explain something to you about Prince. I've been working with Prince for many years now, and I can't go in there and tell him that you can't shoot this documentary. And I'm like, why? And she's like, because Prince doesn't comprehend things the way you and I do. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was just like, well, Prince has been living in Prince world for quite some time. She's like, so, Prince will come to us periodically and say things like, it's three in the morning in Minnesota. I really need a camel. Go get it. And then we try to explain to Prince like, Prince, it's three o'clock in the morning in Minnesota. It's January and you want a camel. That is not physically or psychologically possible and prince says why and she's i'm like what is he being an asshole and she's like no he's not malicious when he does it he just doesn't understand why he can't get exactly what he wants he doesn't understand why someone can't process a simple request like a camel at three in the morning in minnesota uh
0: willis spoke favorably of the film in a 1999 interview concluding it was a real fun movie to make tucker and Jovovich also spoke that's favorably that's a
2: non-story why would he speak unfavorably of it he's trying to promote
4: it
0: Tucker and Jovovich also spoke favourably of both their experiences making the film and working with Besson in interviews in the Ultimate Edition DVD. Jovovich describes uh, Besson as the first really amazing director I had worked with and then made out with. I was
2: going to say, she's a bit biased. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Asked in a 2014 interview if he liked the film, this is nearly 20 years later, Gary Oldman stated, oh no, I can't bear it. He had explained in 2011, it was me singing for my supper because Luke had just come in and partly financed my film Nil by Mouth, which I've seen and is gruelling, but... um, if The Fifth Element helped him make that film then all the better
2: (laughs) Gary Oldman can be disturbingly honest about things sometimes it would appear
0: so
1: (laughs) but yet, manages not to come off like a complete enough oh say like Christopher Eccleston yeah indeed
2: he did um, he did spoil however um Harry Potter for a lot of people
0: oh he did didn't he
2: yes he did like, he, wh- was, he was ticked off yeah. about the fact that his character was not going to see it all the way through to the end and he said so in an interview before Order of the Phoenix had actually come out yeah
0: and uh, yeah yeah. people were uh, like you know as far as he's concerned that was Nil by Mouth 2 Nil by Mouth 3 and Nil by Mouth 4 <laughs> The Revenge <laughs> and he was not party to those uh, last uh, three potter films so i he is briefly in the 8th uh, one isn't he yeah that's lovely <laughs> <coughs> let's let's move on to the actual film itself and um, we begin in 1914 when the N- mandashiwan uh, turn up uh, while the uh, professor is trying to um, work out what's on the pyramid now this is a pyramid yeah. what's in the hieroglyphics and what that means this is a key scene for me because it bonds this to the past. It, it it explains that this stuff has happened before and will happen again, which is one of the most intoxicating things for me. The idea of cycles repeating themselves, and there's a lot of circles in this film that corroborate this. Um, but also, it speaks of the future, and it suggests you know ancient civilizations predicting things is also quite interesting. The actual scene is set around an extremely peaceful race. Uh, but also like peaceful and benevolent to the point where they maybe actually seem quite threatening to um, unenlightened people like ourselves, uh, just coming into contact with us and us screwing everything up with our overreactions.
2: One of the things I love about this is the walking into a room where the entire story of the film is essentially written in symbols on the wall mm-hmm. um, is to me it feels a lot like and I mentioned this when we were talking about something else the other day um, Disney and they're starting an animated movie with the opening the book mm-hmm. and bas- it basically tells you this is a story pay attention to things that may be symbolic of other things mm. uh, pay attention to um things that happen that may well recur as a, a motif that crops up you might even get the power of three every now and again um, but but basically this is a story, read it as a story um, and I, I really really like it when films do that and then carry that through
1: Neil? Yeah, I, it's it's so weird because when I went to see this, I was expecting this huge sort of, maybe not quite, it's sci-fi opera style story. So having it opening up in sort of um, ancient Egypt was such a throw, but quite an enjoyable throw because it has this, it's setting everything up. You, you realise there's law, and also it it kind of reminds me of another film that I really like that happens to involve space aliens in ancient, ancient Egypt. A stargate.
0: Yes, I was going to say that you were. I was thinking that you were thinking of another space opera that heavily features the desert, which could be, um,
1: well, actually, it could be either Star Wars or even Dune. Mm, True, but I like this throwback where they, it's one of the reasons I like Stargate, is the fact they interwove these sort of alien stuff into our history, and this is where it works here as well, Mm. Interweaving the story of the fifth element and the elements themselves, these beneficial aliens, into our own history, our own ancient history. Mm. Although, I do admit this time, because I literally finished watching this film about 15 minutes before doing the show, Mm. what really threw me is I sat there going, wait. Is that Luke Perry in a throwaway role <laughs> in the 90s? <laughs>
4: yeah, it
0: it's uh, not appearing beyond 1914, according to Mikey Newman.
2: The I, I really like the fact as well that it's for a sci-fi, um, which, albeit a very fantastical sci-fi, this is, is kind of mythologising where the story's coming from. And you've got some images in there which are very traditional in terms of... Telling stories from way back when before we actually had science at all. Mm. So, you've got the the ultimate evil is represented by a serpent. Yeah. Um, You've got, there's even um, the the bottle of wine that he takes out. Um, There's a guy on the label that's obviously some kind of representation of Bacchus Bacchus, or or Dionysus. Um, But he's got these little. uh, Satan horns mm. that make him look a little bit like a devil like a, a proper classical cartoonish devil
0: I always took that to be a little clue uh, telling Billy don't trust this this uh, uh, priest, uh, he brings you um, mischievous grapes
2: <laughs> <laughs> because he
0: looks like the priest
2: also, um, this may just be me um, but the, is it the Mandashi ones? yeah, um, who did they remind you of
0: uh, Big Daddies.
2: Okay, not what I was thinking. I would
0: love to yeah. see Luke Besson, as well as uh, either Villeneuve or Besson, do, do Bioshock. Bioshock,
2: yeah. Um, but I th- mean, like
0: Besson would be like oh, little sisters, can do.
2: The way they move and the shape of their heads, in spite of the fact that they're basically in tin cans, the mystics from the Dark Crystal.
0: Yes. Yes. Totally. yeah skaven skexis and
2: yeah they're the bad ones yeah um but the um but yeah the the mystics sort of and and uh, that thing about being so peaceful that it seems aggressive and baffling yeah yeah yeah, that fits with that as well
0: um i actually said to uh, uh lyra that um lilu probably sees corbin like we would a dog Like, you know, she's this endless being of, you know, wisdom, and she does have her own fragility, and a dog can protect us from danger.
2: I love dogs.
1: I (laughs) killed my dog. Sorry, continue. (laughs) I was going to say, one thing I like about the way Miljeljevic portrays her, especially at the start of the film, she's very much a toddler. Mm, mm. I know, uh, probably because I have a toddler. I really recognize that in a lot of like the, the conversation she has with Corbin when she crashes into the taxi cab. Mm,
0: it's just gibberish, she... and she's like, oh, I'm assuming you're going to understand me when I yammer at you. Yes.
2: Indeed. Oh, one of um, thing about the the beginning part, Lyra specifically wanted me to mention this. She was incensed that the uh, the ship it cuts to mm. after the intro sequence looks so much like a Star Destroyer.
0: She was like, "They pinched Star Destroyers," and I was like, "Look, it was the nineties. It was about to be the Everybody early 2000s. thousands."
2: Steals from Star Wars. <laughs> I was
0: gonna. No, I was actually gonna say, if someone was gonna do Star Wars right, it wasn't gonna be George Lucas at the time. Mm, fair point. But. Um, uh, no, the like uh, actually what you, you said about the the yammering Neil, when w- Lilu yammers at Corbin that's like us yammering at a dog, and like he's not going to understand any words except for sit, and it's like ba da boom, and he's like oh, I understand boom. 300 years later, in the year 2263, and it's basically the same human overreaction again, only this time they mess with the wrong people and uh, Mr. Shadow doesn't take kindly to being shot at and flambeys everyone. Now, I, I remember uh, one... Um Uh, Review mentioning that when Zorg talks to Mr. Shadow later on, a dribble of sweaty hair dye comes down from the top of his head because he's sweating so much for talking to uh, uh, Mr. Shadow. But if you watch very closely, the same thing happens to the captain of these uh, warships just before the uh, flame impacts. Uh, Neil! I actually think you're uniquely positioned to be able to interpret what black goo coming out of someone's head <laughs> might actually be. Okay, you just thrown me. I was not expecting that. Black goo out of someone's head. What's the black goo? It's like Prometheus. Oh, no. Um, no, uh, the actual... Uh... It's
2: alien DNA.
0: Okay, I- I'll say two words and you'll go, oh, okay, two words. Papa Shango. <laughs> <laughs> okay folks in the WWF in the 90s there was this voodoo guy called Papa Shango and he was having a feud with the Ultimate Warrior and one time the Ultimate Warrior was having an interview and then Black Goo started coming out of the top of his head and he was like what is this Black Goo because Papa Shango had put a curse on him
4: oh my god I never
0: true story and I think I I could be wrong but I think Luke Besson went oh that's brilliant I'm having that Um." and then he nicked it for his movie but didn't really make it clear that he was doing or what he was doing
1: Oh, oh, it works with the whole Mr. Shadow thing as well. So,
0: yeah, uh, I've always interpreted that as it's residual evil seeping out of uh, Zorg simply through contact with Mr. Shadow.
2: That's pretty much what it says here. Um, it's also oh, you looked up. suggested that um, it's the, the way it appears simulates a condition called hematid- hematidrosis in which subjects under extreme stress or duress have been known to sweat blood.
0: All right. Yeah, they they were both under extreme stress and duress. But But the the point is that Mr. Shadow's the one causing
4: that.
2: Yeah, basically the idea that the human body contains an awful lot of impurities and his evil presence draws all of those Mm. to the surface and causes them to seep out through the head.
0: I would also like to point out that the president, Tiny Lester, he's (laughs) a, a black president and nobody bats an eye. Like, it is never mentioned at any point.
1: And Evidently, he has been released from prison or resurrection from after Gotham. Hulk Hogan defeated. No, I was going to say after Hulk Hogan defeated him in uh, No Holds Barred. Oh shit! There's so many WWF references in <laughs> yes, this. You started it, mate. Um, that's, the, that's the other thing I can remember Tiny Liston being in is No is Zeus from No Holds Barred, yeah.
0: but but he was also the guy on one of the ferries in The Dark Knight. Uh, who, yes, he's who the guy says who no. We're not going to blow the other guys up. I don't no. want an incident.
2: But then why would they? In that particular era there was nothing particular this What uh, as in in
0: 2263 or in Dark Knight.
2: No 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 in
0: No holds The, the mid 90s. <laughs> in WWF.
2: Things were an awful lot more positive, is what I'm suggesting. The idea that in 200 years we might have reached the black president stage would have been like, well, yeah, you would expect so.
0: But that's good. That's that's one of its more progressive um, points. I'm going to jump forwards, because I need to get it said now... Um, uh, just so that we can challenge it maybe along the way because some of this actually does hold water it's a, um, criticisms leveled at the film an article by Brian Ott and Eric Aoki in the feminist journal Women's Studies and Communication considered gender to be one of the film's main themes the author accused the film of erasing women from the introductory scenes noting that Lilu's reconstruction marked only the second appearance of a female in the film's first 20 minutes the other is an androgynous mostly speechless presidential aide when females appear in the film they do so as passive objects such as the sexualized flight and flight attendants and McDonald's attendants, uh, or stripped of their femininity, such as the Butch Major Iceborg. Uh, Stefan Brandt of the book Subverting Masculinity also said that the film echoes stereotypical beliefs about gender of all females in the film, including Lilu, who he thought only left her passive role in the film during her fight with the Mangalores. With the exception of Tiny Listers' portrayal of the president, all males in the film were considered to be as unmanly as possible in various ways, such as Ruby Rod's effeminacy, Vito Corleone's clumsy form of speech, and General Monroe's stupidity. Their purpose was to make Corbin's masculinity appear godlike by comparison."
2: That does kind of make sense. Hmm. Yeah? yeah? Yeah, I can see
1: how you could read
0: that into it.
2: Yeah, I mean... I
0: think it's possible that Bruce Willis had it written into his contract. Must, must be appear godlike. Must godlike
2: by comparison. But I
0: don't think that would mean that Luke Besson was like, right, make everybody else a bumbling shithead.
2: Mm. No, but I, I mean... What I mean is I think it's entirely possible that Luke Besson kind of wrote it that way a little bit on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: uh, nobody to seems that. to have noted the diva in all this. No. She's no, a rather important female presence. She
2: is. Um, but again, I think for me, and I, I completely get what they mean about the fact that Leeloo spends most of her first appearance semi-naked, mm-hmm. and there's obviously an Awful, awful lot of, lot of
0: objectification ways,
2: um, going on. Into it, it, it almost seems a little bit like somebody who comes up and says, I think the feminine is the most important thing in the universe. Excuse me, lady. I think the feminine <laughs> is the most important <laughs> thing in
0: the universe. Shush, and, lady. We're, we're exactly, talking about how the great the ladies are. We're talking
2: about how important femininity is to the saving of when the universe. When those two
0: mangalos in disguise turn up at the airport, um, the lady is like this beautiful, bald French model who's like... Who's we'll be right back and she's got like this gorgeous butt in this uh, like translucent skirt thing that's like totally yeah. impractical but the guy looks like a swelling up and about to pop Sean Gunn. Mm. it's like enjoy ladies you're
2: proving my point about the male gaze here I know nice yes <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah,
0: I, I agree but then to be fair it was a very nice bottom. almost immediately before that or after that I think it's before that because Lilo has already Lilo and Corbin have already end, got on the uh, uh, flight when David's trying to get on with Leeloo, and he's like, oh, and he's bumbling around with his multi-pass, and she's like, Corbin Dallas? And he's like, uh, yeah. When Corbin turns up, Leeloo says, ah, Chachahama. I looked for the translation of that. It's ah, beautiful man. Yeah? Okay.
2: Didn't I think have we that, that written into his contract as well? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay so like as we um, as we proceed let's like look at each scene and, and see how they conform to or challenge these indeed, allegations indeed.
2: but for, for my own perspective, I will just say going back to what I said about the the hieroglyphics and the the symbols at the beginning it to, to me I see this film very metaphorically and very symbolically so' yeah. it's, it's it's not difficult for me to uh, strip away and look past the mm. Occasionally shocking, stereotypical framing of things.
0: Okay, so we need a bunch of flight attendants. You are promiscuous flight attendant. You are fainting flight attendant. You are starstruck flight attendant. You are... (sighs) I'm overworked flight attendant. I really like the flight attendant who's like you Corbin Dallas for the fourth time today. <laughs> She's yeah. got a great dry delivery. And then she finishes with, oh, I'm needed in the basement. And then just sort of lowers <laughs> down behind the thing.
2: Yeah, that's not a lift. She's literally just ducking down under the counter.
0: Okay, so um, we cut after the, uh, um, the, the time crash to uh, Corbin's um, uh, apartment. And this is such an influential moment for me. My first book, which eventually became uh, new century started wildly differently. If you've ever heard blue sun, that's basically like the, the jumping off point is somebody waking up in a flat. that's a little box in a giant industrialized kind of like human beings are a product, um, uh, society. And we uh, you know filled with in, in, the case of the original book, flying cars and indeed motorbikes. Um, and, the you know the Corbyn waking up bit is a wonderful bit of uh like telling you a lot about the world in a very short space of time in an entertaining fashion that's repeatedly fun to watch so you've got the little tiny cigarettes with the massive filters which now actually seem really dated because like we we rather than we'd going be s- yeah, we'd be vaping now yeah we'd be vaping we've got to vaping four would little
2: canisters of vaping fluid
0: yeah but obviously you know seem, seemingly in this like this is it's the tail end of what uh, Neil and I uh, love, and I'm assuming you do as well, which is the um, uh, r- retrofuturism. Mm, yeah, so it's yeah. like there's, we've still got a little bit of Blade Runner-style CRT TV screens and things in there. Mm. And the fact that it's m- largely practical effects with only a little bit of digital added mm. is sort of helps that along.
1: Yeah. So, I really, really like the depiction of the, 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 the future here because it's a very much a mix of sort of the Blade Runner style. Yeah. But uh, the apartment's very much remind me of the mega blocks from Judge Dread. Yeah, I figured you'd, you'd you'd like it in that regard.
2: Mm, uh, the other uh, sort of little bit of ah, like they'd do that is the the um, canisters that they send the post through. Okay, yeah. That the post is now on clear cellophane, mm. but no, they'd send him an email.
0: You're a winner. Uh, that's the thing. Um, the join we are just about to hit it in terms of movie chronology is the internet. When the internet really hit. And it had to hit after the millennium. Mm. It had to hit after the millennium bug because everyone was like, hold on, guys, don't attach Wait. anything important. Wait for this <laughs> millennium bug. Oh, there is isn't no millennium bug. Okay, OK, right, let's launch the internet. That's work. fine. We'll carry on. Off you, off and then from go. that point onwards, it was all about the internet. Mm. And um, movies wonder, changed actually, and mo- sci-fi changed. Yeah, I, and
2: I think that's one of the things that contributed to The Matrix being so huge, the fact that it was it was the first sort of major post-internet sci-fi.
0: Really, though? The first Matrix, I mean, it's it uses a really, really basic-ass version of the internet for them to communicate within the Matrix. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, but compare that to something like... um, Johnny Monomic. I was actually going to say something like uh, Lawnmower Man. Yeah. Or...
0: the net the net exactly that basically the the slew of 90s movies which involved computers that all just make you think that's not how computers work Mm. and they all seem shocking by today's standards
2: Yeah, but that's why i said first big internet Mm. sci-fi
0: the matrix doesn't date quite so badly because it actually almost makes sense that the matrix would keep people in that pre-millennial phase Mm. yeah Mm. Before we became joined together so that we could really talk about well, it.
2: Well, if you think about it, we are now in the next iteration of The Matrix, where they say to people, we're going to let you know that The Matrix is there. Here's these little devices mm. that you can keep with you all the time. You can jump in and out of The Matrix, whenever you feel like it.
0: Apparently, Rick and Morty has has revealed that, that the whole uh, world is just a simulation, so nothing matters. Oh, so.
2: shit, don't tell them that.
0: Yeah, it's fine. Okay, so, um... Careful of them
1: Rick and Morty fans, they're crazy.
4: Yeah. Oh. So
0: we see. Yeah, they, they like their um Sichuan Mulan sauce. Obviously not all Rick and Morty fans, some of my best friends are Rick and Morty fans, but you know which fans I'm talking about. Which contingent. Which bunch of shitheads ruin it for everyone. So um the Give Me the Cash hat guy. Well, mm-hmm. that
2: tells you everything you need to know about Corbin before he sets foot outside his front door. Yeah. Basically, you've got the fact that he he's is totally calm when yep. somebody presents him with a gun. Yep. He is used to this. It happens all the damn time. Very
0: well acquainted he, with firearms. Yeah,
2: the rack of weapons that comes down suggests that he's this happens all the time. his neighbours constantly. <laughs>
0: Which means that this literally happens all the time. Mm,
2: absolutely. Um, and it also tells you that we, we know there are authorities in this world, but they are of... Little use to people Mm -hmm. who live in this environment.
0: And yet, his apartment is fitted with yellow circles and a little speaker so we can talk to people at the door. Watch that speaker carefully. When you're not talking into it, it's grey. When you are talking into it, it's orange. But I think all they did is just swap out the grey speaker for the orange speaker. It's a really great little subtle effect that costs almost nothing. It costs a lick of paint on a duplicate item. But that speaker is used to speak to cops, specifically cops, only cops. cops are literally ready to arrest anyone in their own home which means no one can feel safe and this is something we encountered when we uh, went through customs in america and every time we went into a disneyland theme park the theatrics of security designed to make everyone feel safe conversely make everyone feel nervous
1: I know it's a little bit later on in the film, but when the police actually do turn up and they use that weird little door scanner thing, the mm, yeah. total invasion of privacy, it makes you wonder what's coming in the world where something like that's okay now. You know, they can look into your apartment and see you without actually a warrant or anything, so that's quite, sets up quite the some interesting price thoughts. of peace. That may be it, technically, basically.
2: Technically speaking, in a lot of cases, they can do that if it's for <coughs> terror investigation purposes. Yeah. I mean, obviously not use a little technological device to look through your front door, because that doesn't exist, but...
0: So this world swung heavily, both in the direction of conservatism and security, and in the direction of liberalism and hedonism. Uh,
2: I think that's libertarianism.
0: Oh, Jesus. Is that having your cake and taking someone else's and eating it, and then wearing a special hat?
2: That's having a cake that someone takes away from you, steps on, and then gives you it back and says you're free to eat it.
0: Brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> okay so the um usually we tend to talk about the 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 form and function of uh costumes or props or things and in this case we can't because they are made neither with form nor function in mind this is uh, like form suggests that there's thinking that goes into it I honestly feel like with 900 costumes to design Jean Paul Gaultier simply became a tornado of ideas flying around and yet as out there and crazy as all the costumes are they're really memorable and they really like th- those like orange suspenders for Lilu you remember them
2: they they are mainly to communicate the fact that you are two hundred years into the future or three hundred yeah. years into the future, I think. Um, but the, I was looking for sort of color patterns and things, and other than the obvious sort of McDonald's ones mm. and the, the flight attendants' ones, which are, are kind of branded with the um, the reds as, as and the, the M's airplane. things,
0: and the fact yeah, that uh, Cor- only Corbyn, lilo and some guys who get rid of tribbles from the bottom of airplanes ever wear orange. Mm.
2: There is that, um, but the the orange. I, I the only real colour effect that I could kind of pick up on was um, later on, when you've got the scene where it alternates between the diva and mm. Lila with the fight. Um, the diva is teal, and Lila is orange.
0: Blue seems to be synonymous most of the time through with leisure. The idea that, like, most of the floston Paradise staff, um, the the crew, the, the humanoid crew wear sort of these dark blue sailor suits. Um, there's a lot of blue sky around all over the place. And the diva's blue and...
2: Corbin's hotel room is blue.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of blue there. And, and basically it would appear that, that their version of luxury is all sort of tied to blue. There's a lot of yellow in the industrialised section.
4: mm mm-hmm. hmm. yeah.
0: And a sort of a goldish-yellow... Um, it's it's not really... It's not cold. Nothing in this film is ever cold. It's warm, no, no matter what the colour. It's so inviting to watch as it's well. It's very rich. There's nothing the ugly either. I mean, even the Megalors have these kind of, like, twisted... They're fascinating, like... Uh, uh, um, almost a, a del toro creature
2: part of that i think comes from watching the um the guys talking about how they they made mm. them and how they designed them and the fact that they used this brand new silk and something material, silken silk and latex i think it was mm. material that nobody had ever used before so they had to figure out how best to shape it mm. um but it, they loved the fact that it was all sort of this translucent material that looked really flesh-like mm. and was incredibly soft to touch um which immediately makes them fascinating
0: And while there's nothing that really looks genuinely ugly, uh, you can imagine that if you go to the Megalore's home planet, that's got to be pretty grim. Mm. Um, You didn't
2: find the the big concrete blocks of buildings to be a little bit on the ugly side?
0: Because it's retrofuturism. It's kind of fascinating still, though. (laughs) To be
1: fair, they're quite believable. A lot of uh, just the... the, um, I forgot the proper word for it the outside shots, where they're establishing the city and everything thank you I knew it started Um, they feel very believable Mm. and I really like the McDonald's drive-thru as well for some reason I just get a kick out of that that it's you've still got flying cars but we still have Mm. (laughs) drive-thru
0: two golden menus
2: nothing's bland
0: yeah Nothing. Nothing's boring to look at. Nothing's
2: uh, grimdark. Navy blue.
0: Corbyn himself has actually spruced up his apartment with a lot of kind. You know, he's got the, the, what a lovely fish tank. His cat, obviously, is abundant with personality in those crazy eyes. Uh, and they've clearly gone with... In the same way that Blade Runner 2049 did this same thing. They've looked at um, people who live in Shanghai and China and have to make a great use of a very small amount of space. Mm. So you've got a lot of folding things and like moving things and beds that go here and then fold in and fold out and then you pull things down and you push them back up again. Mm. Um, check That's out very those kind of Ikea. apartments on, on YouTube. Um, th- there are some fascinating... People who live in this... Like a, a place half the size of the room I'm sitting in now—that's their entire living space—and they have made astonishing use of it. Sorry, carry
1: on now. I was going to say it's almost a very IKEA style of future, mm. where, where where his apartment is very utilitarian. Mm.
2: I think though. If you think about it too hard, it does all fall apart a little bit because the much like the amount all
0: of the fifth element. <laughs> well,
2: indeed, the amount of space that would need to be under Corbin's floor for his fridge to go into when his shower comes down, uh, and the amount of space that would need to be behind the wall for the bed drawer to slide away yeah. into, basically just take that space and extend the flat.
0: That's a point. Like That would mean that someone underneath him would have to have a great big chimney type thing. So, oh, yeah, great, mm. Corbyn's fridge just came down. Or is it his shower? I can't remember. Mm. Yeah. Fridge down, shower up. Good, good point. But, like, yeah, no, uh, everything falls apart. Ultimately, it is... Everyone is dressed in a very silly way. Like, Bruce Willis is wearing a green... uh, Sorry, an orange vest with little slats at the back that he would never put on if he was going to go out in polite company.
1: The, the, The easiest way I can sum it up, and I don't... It might sound harsher than I actually mean it is. It's very much style over substance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Style over substance, pretty much. Like, here's the thing. It... On the surface, it's a deeply shallow movie, and uh, Besson himself said he didn't want it to be about themes in general. Uh, but it's masking, with all of this glitz and glamour, the most important thing ever that's at the core of it. And like, we've, like I said, we've just seen Wonder Woman again, and it's basically the same thing. Like, humans, hmm. like we'll get to that when we get to it, but it's uh, the, the fact that it has that under the surface and that it is unflinching when it confronts you with it, elevates this movie from just fluff, which it could have been. And Valerian, side note, does not have that. It does not have that deep sense of this is about something. And that's a shame, because I really wanted Valerian to be sort of like coming back to to this kind of um, story. And it it is generally just style of a substance and a load of great ideas spattered at a wall. Okay, so we also can talk here about the consistently reference quality image. Since this was first released, it was always a fantastic looking DVD. Uh, it was apparently, when it was first released on Blu-ray, it was always great on video, but when it was released on Blu-ray, the first version of it disappointed fans because they'd said it's always been looked fantastic on uh, a DVD. That's- so Columbia went away and in a relatively unprecedented situation, made a second pressing of it and allowed you to mail in your old disc if you weren't satisfied with it. And the the second version, which came out in, I believe, 2007, or was it 2011, uh, was uh, much, much better. And since then, in America... There's been a mastered in 4K version, which is what they do on Blu-ray sometimes, where they take a a, a 4K print and sort of like reduce it from to like 2000 and then just reduce it a little bit more and then fit it onto the DVD. So it's just it's just a really clear picture. They did it with Ghostbusters and Spider-Man's.
1: Um, and the Ghostbusters one is well worth looking for. It's gorgeous. It, it's the one that's in the, the double pack, not the single. Yeah. I don't, uh, know. I don't will, know if
0: that's changed. It will say mastered in 4K on the box, on someone on the blurb. If it doesn't say yeah. it, it probably isn't. Uh, and then uh, they uh, released a 4K, like a proper UHD version, this year, at the 20th anniversary of it. Um, and that, by all accounts, leaves even the Blu-rays in the dirt. It is a must-have.
1: If There's, you're um, American... I was about to say, yes, because one of the challenges when Alex asked me to do this was, I don't actually own a copy of this film. Yeah. I ended up, by luck, going into a charity shop and finding the DVD.
0: Lucky sod, because here's the thing, folks. If you're in England and you want the Fifth Element, you're in Neil's shoes, because they have cancelled production of the Blu-ray in the UK. You can't buy it on Amazon from Amazon. You can buy it... ...from Amazon sellers. You can't buy it in HMV. It's available on eBay... ...and it'll be marked up. If you want to buy the... ...Mastered in 4K version from America... ...you are shit out of luck. Because it is region locked. A region locked Blu-ray... ...where they say... ...you cannot watch this... ...you are not allowed to watch it... ...if you don't live in America. The 4K UHD version... ...is region locked. This means Americans get to... ...watch this gorgeous, wonderful film... And there is no notification that it will ever be released in the UK. Does that mean
2: they've never released it in France on Blu-ray?
0: Maybe, maybe not. It would be called Re Bleu, if it was. But I can check that out for you. But, like, you know, the, the French will already probably... It's most likely that the French will have a swanky version. I'm
2: just wondering if the reason that we can't get the American version is because they want us to buy the European version.
0: No, that's not how region locking works. Okay. Region locking is like, no, it is distributed by a different person in this country, and you cannot have it. Um, the region locking
1: stems from back in the day where they wanted staggered releases. It's really outdated <laughs> and weird. It is, yeah. It's horrendous, especially for Blu-ray. Because no one owns a Blu-ray player that
0: they buy Blu-rays for regularly that doesn't really love film. And if you really love film, that's the sort of person who really should genuinely be able to buy something pay a premium for it and, and overseas and that they get it overseas and but, but, like, basically if you have no intention of releasing it in, in Europe
1: don't region lock it, what the fuck even best thing is uh, where's my first go to? Oh, okay. I, I can't buy the I can't buy the blu I'll go to iTunes nope, not available
0: digitally they, yeah, you- they have effectively banned the fifth element in England and I, right now, folks, I can guarantee that some people on their iPods are jumping on eBay to check to see if they can get the Blu-ray, because god damn it. It's it's precious, and uh, that this is sad. Because uh, when Blade Runner 2049 came out, Blade Runner came out on, you know, because it's already had a, a, a wonderful, masterful um, final version on Blu-ray, which is readily available. It's also been uh, re-released in, uh, in 4K, so you can get that version as well. And then another version with 4K, with all the different editions of it, which is even better.
2: It's not available on Amazon Prime, but you can get Ultraviolet.
0: Well, thank God. Oh, thank God, God you can get Ultraviolet
1: oh piece of shit walk away
0: yeah um, so uh, yeah I'll I'll just point that out it's reference quality it's one of the finest blu-rays and from the sounds of it finest 4k discs ever released and you can't have it
1: Sorry. <laughs> to, to, to say how good this is, I know a couple of journalists uh, who use the fifth element of, of Blu-ray and that to test televisions out yeah. for its colour levels. That's how good it
0: is. It makes sense. You need something that you can check regularly and, and uh, you know, it's, it's got like the oranges are really orange the blues are really blue You know, that's that's the kind of film you want and there's a certain quality you get with film grain again this is pre-digital so folks if you're looking for a fifth element on Blu-ray you want to look for one which has got a PG on the uh, front it's uh, on the uh, bottom left hand corner as with all uh, UK releases if you get anything which doesn't have a PG on it it's probably from a different region it'll probably be region locked you'll be shit out of luck but the version that I have has Lulu on the front with her hands up Um, just before she's about to jump, and Corbin also pointing a gun. That's the version you want, which was the re-released edition. You don't want the earlier non-re-released edition. And that you can get, Neil, if you want to find that uh, and snap it up quick before it becomes impossible to find altogether for £10 delivered on eBay right now.
1: That's
0: not too bad. Well, there's uh, Music Magpie selling them for £13, and there are honestly, looking at it, precious few fifth element you you can get them but a lot of these ones that are available are available from other countries and are probably going to be locked to you
1: i was honestly genuinely surprised that something like this was not available digitally really because when you think about it it's can't cost them that much surely
0: it's got to be something to do with rights there's no way, like, especially if Valerian came out this year, you'd think that they would re- release uh, the Fifth Element in 4K, like they did in America, to say, "Hey, folks, get this in 4K. Remember how good this was?" And also go and see Valerian. That's what you do when a big thing comes out. That's why I mentioned the Blade Runner thing. Didn't help Blade Runner though. Valerian cost 180 million dollars, made 225, which is bad. That's bad. But Blade Runner cost 150 million and has only to date made 158. That's terrible. There's only really so much that home cinema enthusiasts can do to promote a film, but believe me, I'm trying. Let's go back to The Fifth Element and recreating Lilo in. For some reason, I always equate this as the most Blade Runner-ish sequence. Uh, It it could be the fact that Leon's in it. Um, It could just be the fact that when the uh, guy who's doing the like the doctory guy reminds me of how detached the um people who specialize in replicants are in blade runner
5: Mm. the whole yeah
0: can't wait to meet him just the whole like it's it's more fascinating to see this thing in action than it is to actually equate the person you're about to meet with a person if that makes sense there's a slightly dehumanizing element to, to how they're throwing her together effectively it's a 3d printer with flesh and blood it also um as as you said Sharon, when you when like don't ask too many questions, it throws up questions like, so can you even die in the future like could they like if all they need is a few scraps of hair, can they recreate you entirely
2: i I do get the impression that this is an incredibly experimental and expensive technique hmm. um that uh, they wouldn't do this with just anyone,
1: yeah,
0: but it might have been you know it, it might have made sense for like one of them to um it would have been consistent with the story if someone had died at the end of the film and then been brought back in that way. Mm. But it also asks, you know, huge questions about the nature of the soul. I was as just well. about to
2: say there is also the fact that technically this is not the same supreme being that just got blown up in the um, yeah. the ship crash. She is a clone.
0: Yeah, to all intents
2: and purposes.
0: But also, it's possible that this sort of thing has happened before. That all ha- all that ever happens with Lelou is that she is reborn and is destroyed and is reborn and is destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and effectively, the Mondashi ones were just one-upping this one by getting a little bit ahead of the humans' incompetence and well, self-destructive they, capabilities. They
2: took her away in a sarcophagus, didn't they? In, yeah. in 1914, which kind of suggested she was dead.
0: This, like, some questions regarding this, this this whole thing. When I watched it, I was having to like retrofit it when I was watching it as a, a, a teenager and going, right, Okay." So that glove that was holding the case, if you actually look carefully, the case that Gary Oldman has later is missing one handle, which is the one that the, uh, the glove was still holding. But that's while it, it looks like the moulded glove on the sarcophagus, it appears that Lilu was on the Mondeshiwan ship wearing Mondeshiwan armour. Mm-hmm. Like they resurrected her at some point in the past 300 years, and she was whole and ready to go, and then they went back to Earth. And the plan would appear to be get to Earth and then leave Earth again and go to Floston Paradise. Why not just go straight to Floston Paradise and then go to Earth with the stones? If they're anticipating being attacked by Mangalores as they reach Earth, well, they didn't because the Mangalores blew them up, but... It doesn't matter where you go; the Mengalors are going to blow you up. Basically, the Mandashi ones' fatal flaw is trusting too much. They needed a military escort at all times.
2: Although you say trusting too much, they knew something was up. They yeah. sent the stones and the fifth element separately.
0: Yeah. But I, I I would argue that Lilu does have agency. She has a mission to fulfil and mm. she sticks to it so hard everyone else pretty much has to follow along with her. Mm. And all she has to do is explain to them, this is what I'm doing.
2: To, to me, I think what what really um, made it stick and what what made it fly in a way that possibly wouldn't in some circumstances is that the agency she lacks is not as a woman it is as a religious weapon. It doesn't really matter what form she had, she would still have lacked the <laughs> choice to decide not to take part in the um uh, the ritual that would have set off the weapon.
0: This would make for an interesting comparative with The Messenger, wherein she plays Joan of Arc, directed by Luc Besson. You ever seen it?
4: No.
0: She's a religious weapon. Hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but she's also a woman, and she's also, like, Joan of Arc is one of the most inspiring women of all time.
2: Mm. But I think I think she, you're right, it's her mission at the end of the day. She's the one who is taking herself to meet up with the diva, get the stones, and get this enacted. Mm. Um, in fact, I said this to you while we were watching it, and you, um, you referred to, or they, they referred in the... Commentary, or in one of the, the behind-the-scenes sequences, as uh, to Corbin as the hero, and I said he's not the hero; he no. is a support character in this.
0: For all they're making him look godlike, he is a litany of flaws, and clearly, like he's detached from humanity and and feeling. And he actually has quite a big arc in this story. He goes from being jaded to being able to embrace something larger, and actually. If you look at what Corbyn really does, he's assisting Lilu mm,
2: Absolutely, and this ties in with um, a, a slightly more pre-Christian way of looking at the dynamic between God and Goddess, for want of a better term. But the the idea that the the supreme creator, not being a male god at all, that the goddess is the planner and the organizer and the one that, that you know puts everything together. He is her hand.
4: Mm.
0: Um, also, when we were watching, I do. I tend to do this sometimes. I queue up a different bit of music and play it over the film to see how it, well it juxtaposes. I tried using the opening of Blade Runner for when Zorg is looking out of his uh, window at the uh, uh, you know sunset New York. It doesn't work. It's too dark. It's too majestic a mm. theme to go with the chaotic fifth element. <clears throat> and uh, the I, brightness. As I well. tried uh, you know using the sort of the the, the way that that. Um, track elaborates with the new york traffic and it's it's the other coast it's (laughs) it doesn't work you're 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 not high up enough you're down in you're effectively at street level it's just that there's that many streets going up and down above and below you Um, so you don't get that detachment that the uh, blade Mm. runner um uh, opening has so i always thought oh well just you know flying cars that's blade runner But then I thought hard about it after watching Blade Runner recently and went, no, actually, Blade Runner isn't about flying cars. It's not about flying traffic. The police have mini helicopters in the shape of cars. That's about it. The cops have flying cars, but it's not like regular people are driving around. In The Fifth Element, he's actually gone. Look at this. Everyone's driving around and the roads are effectively invisible. And everyone's all in traffic jams and like nearly having mid-air collisions, and there's loads of guys below you, and it's a freaking death trap.
1: You know what actually sprang to mind when I was watching it? Um, I know it comes later, but uh, the episode of Doctor Who Gridlock.
0: Yeah, mm. I think that was inspired by this, and yeah. Um, yeah. Future Armor as well is relative is similar to this as well. They, there's lots of shots in Future Armor, especially in the first series, of cars in the air. But not moving at all because they're all gridlocked, mm. and it's like, well, why are you even flying? Because mm-hmm. that's what Futurama gets to do. It gets to challenge these um, their previous conventions.
2: Revenge of the Sith as well. Do they have a flying car chase in that? Ugh,
1: shudder. <laughs> yes,
0: Would you like these death <laughs> It's it's a it's a stupid clown circus of um, that. As I said when we were talking about Blade Runner, Coruscant doesn't tell us anything about ourselves. No.
2: It barely tells you anything about Coruscant, to
0: be fair. But, I mean, Futurama does tell us about ourselves. We create these things for convenience and then suffer all amounts of inconvenience for the excuse to use them. Mm -hmm. And the fifth element is pretty much that same thing of, like, all this hustle and bustle of New York. All you've done, really, is multi-layer up the streets. Or, as you say, multi-buggered it. Multi-buggered the whole of New York City. Mm. But at the same time, it's a New York I'd really like to live in. It seems so vibrant, and it seems like you could really go and get a... No? You don't want to? No? I'm
3: thinking nope.
0: not, no. Only for a, only for a year, until it make, but leave before it makes me hard. Mm. And then I'd live in New Los Angeles for a year, but leave before it makes you soft.
2: You mean leave before you get executed by Ryan Gosling.
0: And then I'd live in Neo-Tokyo for a year, but leave before Akira blows it up again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what we're, we're learning about these retrofuture stuff's? They're not safe places to live. They aren't.
2: No, no. Find yourself a nice little bungalow in the country. It's the only way to be sure. I watched Uh,
0: Tron Legacy earlier today, the the movie, for the first time since I saw it the only other time before, and it is a fantastic soundtrack with a movie attached. And (laughs) um, (laughs) There's one fantastic performance. Yeah.
1: Modern... uh,
0: Michael Michael Sheen Sheen, yeah I was thinking that I was like why did you blow him up fake Jeff Bridges he's great he's the best thing in this at least someone's having fun but at the end um, white boy I can't remember his name uh, takes uh, uh, Olivia Wilde um, out in the real world and drives her through trees and the look on her face is just rapturous and I thought well that's really nice and that's basically the best
1: I could get out of uh, uh, Tron Legacy. Like I said, it's a soundtrack looking—it's a great soundtrack looking for a great movie. Yeah, it's—it's—it's um, it's got, it's got some great visuals actually, especially like just the
0: how they've realised the uh, the cycles. But um, my God, and that fake Jeff Bridges moiderises that film.
1: Well, the funny thing is, that's another one where I could clearly point to style over substance. Yeah, there's a lot of style, not a lot of substance. Yeah. Okay.
0: Question: What the hell were McDonald's thinking with their endorsement in the fifth? I don't year? care. I love it. It's fantastic, <laughs> but at this, like they, they, it sweeps between like being like horribly shallow and like hey look mcdonald's is this oh
1: you mean like mcdonald's itself yeah exactly
0: garish and annoying and mcdonald's enough for you but then when they crash into that mcdonald's truck and
1: they're covered in the raw ingredients it's disgusting the- actually the biggest chuckle i got from that scene is oh it's captain hollister drive it being a <laughs> <car.">
0: <laughs> i tell that to lose uh, to lyra every time that's the captain of red dwarf and she goes really the the McDonald's thing is connective tissue to our world. It's mundane and, and, and garish enough for us to... like. It doesn't feel the same as those um, product placements in a Michael Bay film or in uh, James Bond. It states, plainly, that in 200 years from now, McDonald's will still be going. And I thought, yeah, you know what, if the human race is still around, probably, yeah, that... That kind of makes it's,
1: sense. It's, it's some of the key choices they make in stuff that they show you that makes it feel real and believable. But you look at the taxi cab, it's what you think of when you think of an American or a New York taxi cab. Yeah. It's that yellow with that checkerboard uh, across the, the middle. Mm. The the police cars, that shade of blue that you associate with police American police cars in New York. It's McDonald's. It's it's everything you know about McDonald's. It's just that big, you know, the, the golden arches on the red background. You, you instantly... It doesn't date. Hmm. The, the kind of images that don't date, and that was a very clever choice. Yeah.
2: Because people still recognize them. And actually, it's an extension of what you said to me about um, Planet Flosten. Because hmm. I was like, oh, look, that behind her, that's Earth. And you pointed out that, in fact, it's not Earth, it's the planet Flosten. It's, it's symbolic. just that it really, really, really looks like Earth.
4: Yeah.
0: That's because super super rich people fly all the way across the planet Floston to basically do a cruise that they could have done around the uh, um, Pacific Ocean.
2: Mm. Although one assumes that I don't know Hawaii maybe doesn't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, once they built that bridge to it, it just got too touristy. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Neil, I don't, I'm going to bet money you've seen this movie, Heavy Metal. Of course, of course. It's an anthology, isn't it? Of different yes, stories. Az- yes, yeah, it's an anthology. Like, the first story is about a grizzled yeah. cab driver who yeah, ends up um, with Harry...
1: Hem- Henry uh, Canyon.
0: Yeah. Yes. No. I can't I guess... remember, but, but yeah. Like um, that. That, but he's a grizzled cab driver. He ends up with a panicking woman with gingery red hair, wearing yep. all white in the back of his cab, telling him to drive really, really fast, and she's desperate for to, for help. And then she ends up falling into a swoon, and he carries her up to his apartment. And like when he gets into his apartment, which looks like this... Um like you know, a- ancient-looking retro-futurism, like cables and, uh, and uh, bits of old machinery everywhere piled up. He, it's very much a noir. So he's like talking about her as a femme fatale, and she, of course, turns out to be a femme fatale, and it's kind of gruwy. Uh, <laughs> what happens?
1: A, with, it doesn't uh, have a happy ending.
0: Yeah, no, she's treacherous, like all women in noir films. Um, but like
2: all your kind, yeah, false. false,
0: but. That is straight out of heavy metal when Corbin turns up with uh, his... She's not my bride, she's my fair, in uh, Cornelius' um, apartment. Um, and actually, I, re- I recall um, like some of the French artists tried to sue Luc Besson for 700,000 euros uh, for taking their ideas from various previous works. There a-
1: is a fair few bits in this that reminds me of heavy metal yeah the taxi cab that corbin yeah it's very reminiscent of that opening one from um, from heavy metal itself mm.
0: and um that, that that does bear weight however uh, i believe the judge threw some of these claims out of court because uh, it was revealed that hang on luke besson hired you and then you're complaining that his work is too similar to your work that does seem a bit dumb it's a factor uh, I don't know exactly how they settled it, but Luke Besson made Valerian recently, so it can't have been that uh kind Which,
1: of didn't that borrow, like, the Mass Effect typeface or something?
0: It's... Uh, Valerian borrows the Mass Effect Shepherd armour. Both, vale- both Valerian and Loreline wear Shepherd armour. They are basically the two Shepherds. So, yeah, if you're a Mass Effect fan, there's that. There's also and I'll say this about Valerian, and Bob Chipman said it as well, an awe-inspiring, wonderful beginning that gives all kinds of hope about humanity. It's basically the uh, International Space Station over the course of centuries, growing and growing and growing. And it is a Sounds wonderful cool. sequence. And you know, we come into contact with more aliens as we go. And it's like a prequel to The Fifth Element. And it's like, this makes total sense, and it is a future I want to be part of. Can we please explore this world? No, nope. we're going to do a whole bunch of batshit mental nonsense <laughs> instead. Oh uh, it's, it's not a bad film, but it's, um, it's a scatterbrained film. It's like, it, it's, it's better than the way Suicide Squad turned out. <laughs> Just in terms of, like, you know, a scattershot film.
1: You mean that film that's pretty much carried by Margot Robbie and um, Will Smith?
0: Yeah, that's the one. Um, but in uh, this uh, film, The Fifth Element, the focus on Lilo I think, was best defined when she goes, No, Danko, and, like, takes off her T-shirt and puts on a new shirt while Cornelius and David are talking. And they turn around and they're very nervous and they're looking away. And she's in the background, blurry and out of focus. And definitely her nipples are out, but it's not... Leering at
1: her in the way that a Michael Bay film would. No, it's very much a oh oh she. It's almost British comedy. It's like oh she's changing her top, turn around, I'm matron.
2: Can't possibly look at that. But I
0: th- yeah, Ian Holmes sells that perfectly yeah, as well. You never yeah. feel like Ian Holmes a leery, disgusting part pervert. Of,
2: no, part of that is because they're monks or yeah. you know uh,
0: priests of some sort. I bring you to the name of the Rose, which is full yeah, of leery, disgusting perverts.
2: <laughs> yes, I know. Um, but, and a uh, great
0: film, too. But
2: I, I think... Directed what, by a Frenchman. What emphasises that... <laughs> Jean-Jacques um is, ...is partly the way... Because obviously Corbyn's the one who's doing the most adoration of her. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the way... And again, this ties in with the way that first scene is, is presented. You get all those little tidbits about his life. The fact that you have you're american um, tidbits. Uh, ...this idea of him being so incredibly lonely and him having this what sounds relatively recent wife-shaped gap in his life. Yeah. Um, which makes his reactions to her seem relatively authentic and at the very least sympathetic rather than just pathetic.
0: And also the people that he's closest to, Finger and his mother, you never see them. Uh, he only ever talks to them on the phone and they're horrible to him. Yeah. Indeed. That's his friends.
2: Yeah, and the uh, they underline this um, th- this tone of how Lulu ought to be viewed um, with the um, never without my permission scene. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it. I, and again, I'm not saying for even a second that they're saying um, that, that this is. An amazingly fantastic way to present women because ultimately she is very idolised and she's put on a pedestal and the way she is treated and the way she's looked at is very, very different from the way the flight attendants are treated and looked at. They are Supreme literally being. there for Ruby to turn on for effect.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, it, we're not saying the fifth element is above reproach. As we said, Wonder Woman does it a hell of a lot better.
2: Yes. Not a, a bastion of feminist... Art here, or anything.
0: I do wonder Um, what The Fifth Element, directed by Patty Jenkins, would be like.
2: Oh, now so do I.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or or, oh, The Fifth Element, directed by Rachel Talele.
4: Hey! (laughs) Ah, Given
0: how things are
1: going with um. Thor Ragnarok um, I can't pronounce the director's name but he sounds like he could have fun with this kind of material uh, yeah
0: Taika Waititi, Taika Waititi. honestly the, that's what Thor Ragnarok reminds me of most looking at the uh, design that bright and colourful space opera like Thor should maybe have been that from the beginning
1: yes this yeah. looks like it's probably going to be the best of the lot
0: yeah more on that coming soon actually like, watching Wonder Woman it just made The uh, showdown in the New Mexico town seems so small that, you know, even though Thor is growing as a character, it's a wonderful scene it just seems like, let's turn up, we don't even have to get into costume, I'll just wear a shirt at this mm. point.
2: But it's, it, be... it's very personal and it's yeah. that's part of That doesn't the make Thor a
0: bad film, no, it just no. makes Wonder Woman seem epic mm. by comparison. Yeah,
1: but Wonder was... Woman is much more epic in comparison.
2: It is, and and that's one of the things, to be fair, that some people picked up on that they didn't like about Wonder Woman was the fact that they still had this big epic uh, villain battle at the end. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not against the. I'm not actually against the villain battle. It's just I wasn't keen on the whole genus of it, which is awkward because how do you show these these super powered individuals?
0: Yeah, they are gods.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So moving forwards, it's fine. Um, Zorg, Jean Baptiste, Emmanuel, Zorg, um, best described by himself as an honor hating monster. Um, he's. Uh, The fact that Gary Oldman didn't like this uh, uh, film at all, and from the sounds of it, probably didn't have that much fun in the performance... I don't
2: think Gary Oldman likes much.
0: uh, uh, Maybe so, but he is colossal fun to watch. And just knowing the fact that he didn't like it isn't going to change it that much for me, because he's a pantomime villain.
1: Oh, God, yes, especially
0: with that accent. Yeah. Anyone care to explain? He's got this, um, like he's so ostentatious, and he's so much fun to uh, to watch. That, like, uh, like, do you remember? Did you have you seen *Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2: Out of the Shadows* yet? Yes, I have. Do you know the Shredder in that? Yes. A, a lesser director would make Zorg just the Shredder in that, just quiet. Mm. Bring them to me. Get me the stones. But this Zorg is off his trolley, and if the shredder had been like Zorg in this, that would have made that film a freaking classic. I think. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you know what he reminds me of as well? They're babies. Um, and and this is actually really crucial narratively. Yeah. Um. I can never remember what the damn film's called. Ray Winston. No, by math. Ben Kingsley. Sexy
1: beast. Sexy.
2: Right. Ben Kingsley in that. Yeah is a almost ridiculous villain. He's He is incredibly terrifying, but no, he's also no, 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 crazily no. over the top. Yeah. Um, His name's Dom. In a way that if he if he pushed it much further, he would become he, uh, comical. Yes. Mm. However,
0: he's part of the point
2: of that is that then when Ian McShane turns up...
0: He's he the man that do... Ben Kingsley is scared exactly. of.
2: Exactly. He doesn't have to do... Anything! <laughs> all we need to know is that Ben Kingsley is scared of him and he's instantly the most terrifying thing that's ever existed. Yeah. And they use this to great effect in this because they've set Zorg up as this um, this totally out there, ridiculously threatening, violent, aggressive individual. And then when you get Mr Shadow, he hardly has to do anything at all. Yeah. You see how terrified Zorg is of him, and you instantly know how bad he is.
0: He's Sauron. We've already seen him fla- uh, you know, incinerate a bunch of Star Destroyers without any <laughs> With, issue.
1: <coughs> With a terrible CGI flaming skull.
0: Oh, God, yeah. The, the digital effects in this are not great. In fact, during the Diva Dance, originally she was going to have these CGI wings that are popped up halfway through and I'm so glad they didn't mm. keep it mm. practical it still looks gorgeous Absolutely. You, you plaster on late 90s mid 90s at that stage F, uh, CG effects digital effects they all seem slightly blurry and out of focus that's how basic they were this is when Tomb Raider was still bumping up against walls and going no but here's the thing: like more not more bad digital effects in the fifth element would have dragged this thing down like anchors. Each and every one of them would just like have you going, oh.
2: and date yeah, you, it horrendously. Yeah. yeah,
1: you look at Blade Runner and you look at this for it's just it, it's it's flying scenes alone. Yeah, they don't date; they do look very stunning. Mm.
0: That thing Corbin was in. Was a real giant cab model, and they, they okay. tried to use as much of that as possible during the flight sequences.
2: Yeah, absolutely, but yeah, going back to the um, the way Mister Shadow is is kind of underlined by Zorg. The if you look at when he first turns up and does his incredibly destructive act, um, that is not personal. There's there's no. Um, Visible being behind that, he's still Galactus at that point—a mm. planet that's turned up and is going to devour everything. Yeah, it takes—turd cloud. Well, indeed, <laughs>
4: um,
2: it it takes that interaction with Zorg to um, to show us that there is a person behind there who is as terrifying as a planet that's going
0: to eat everybody. Honestly, they did a better Galactus than the Fantastic Four movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because they turned Galactus into a flipping turd. Well, no, Green Lantern is the ultimate turd cloud. Yeah.
0: Well, Galactus never got on the dog and bone to uh, the Silver Surfer and just, like, growled at him to get stuff done. And and if the Silver Surfer had, like, bled black goo out of his head and gone, oh, all right then, he'd be like, wow, he's the man that the Silver Surfer's scared of. That would have given him some power. But no, we we never really talked about Byron James that much as uh, in um, uh, the, our Blade Runner review because ben, because Leon is so basic as a character. But I hmm. love the fact that General Monroe keeps popping up in this. Like he's at the yes. beginning and uh, with the presidential incident, and then he's uh, when Lelu gets reformed, and then later when like the the whole we need you to go on this mission is such a contrivance. Like that powers the story along because. They're literally going to the guy who the person who escaped from them fell into his lap to ask him to do an effectively unrelated mission that's entirely related. It's just too many strands all weaving together to, to really not feel preordained. But he's funny. Byron James is really funny in this role. Yes, yes.
1: I also like the little nod at Star Wars in it as well. Yeah,
0: the Major Iceborg buns, yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, that's okay. Speaking of um, Blade Runner characters we never talked about, I can't believe we got through the whole thing without talking about James Hong. At any point, uh, we didn't mention the, the guy who makes the eyes. Uh, that, he, uh, he is. We must have he's...
2: mentioned him briefly because I pointed out that his name was Hannibal Chu.
0: You. I don't think you actually did that in the episode. You said oh. that before we started. Oh, James okay. Hong's name in Blade Runner is Hannibal Chu. Ron Perlman's name in uh, Pacific, Rim. Pacific Rim is, is Hannibal there. Chow. And Ron Perlman was in The Name of the Rose. It all fits together, And Fox. he
2: deals in
4: bits.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and And also the guy who sells... Um, noodles to uh, um, Deckard at the beginning that With that cringe inducing He say you braid runner line It's kind of referenced Kim Chan who plays Mr. Kim The man who tells uh, Corbyn that he's probably going to have good luck and then Corbyn sees good in bad. I like good philosophy. Like he's got a little flying junk. That gives a little extra um, ounce of personality to the New York um, Hmm. scape. Again, as with Blade Runner, as with Firefly speaks of a world where Eastern and Western influences unite this is a future I would I would prefer to live in than most other <coughs> visions of the future, I know it is, it's polluted it, as, as hell but it,
1: it's, a, it's a good way of adding personality to the future a, a very bland, generic benign future I always point to is uh, iRobots future Ugh, yeah which is uh, when there's certain aspects is great that the creepy scene in the container yard is fantastic but when you see a lot of just the day-to-day stuff it's very but now you pointed out uh, was it the total recall re- remake reboot yeah. thing you said that's also very generic and, and such God, so. yeah
0: it's awful even with jessica biel uh, but but the fifth element has this <sighs> sense that like, we're a bit crap, but we muddle along. And hmm. honestly, the, the kind of futures that that, ever, that pitch that feel like the most realistic futures of all. Because if you go to too much extremes of we're terrible, we're going to destroy ourselves. And then only Look. a few ragtag survivors <laughs> will, will get by.
1: The basic plot is this. We all want to live in the Star Trek future, but we're mm. more likely to live in the fifth element.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, and you know that the like our lives are going to be a bit crappy, and we'll have to sacrifice things. And Children of Men has a bit of this as well, but there's such a baleful sort of Damocles hanging over the human race in there that it's hard to notice that things are sort of moving forwards, okay, in some areas because everything that else film. is shutting up shop. There's,
2: well, this is the thing: there's plenty of money to go around because nobody's able to spend it on their kids yeah. or invest it for their for future generations. Everyone's spending. Yeah. So the economy is sort of doing okay. But yeah, I I, I know totally what you mean. We'd we'd love to be in the Star Trek future. The fifth element future is likely. The Blade Runner future, I find it difficult to imagine we'd get to that point without at least one revolution.
1: Hmm. Or a world war, which technically happened, so... Meanwhile, at the spaceport, I always figured that
0: they mentioned, sorry about this, the garbage, as a way to not have to digitally add an entire airport behind them. They just filled up half of the small hangar that they had, the small soundstage, with bags of garbage, and said, well, this is only part of the airport, the rest of it's behind the garbage. This is quite a nice idea, actually, just in terms of what can we do with practical effects, rather than going, sod it, we'll fudge it with a digital effect afterwards. Mm.
2: And the garbage actually serves several purposes mm. because you've got that, you've got the fact that pointing at it makes Lilu turn round, which means that she sees... Uh, Chachahama um, And then you've got the fact that the uh, the Fourth attempt at being No, the third attempt at being the megalos. Corbin Dallas yeah. um, Get to jump into it to hide Yeah,
0: uh, Zorg, to go back to Zorg a little bit um, Represents uh, obviously the, the pinnacle of, of mankind's uh, Achievements uh, turned evil the idea being that, you know, this the, the wicked industrialist is the one what done it. Again, I, I don't understand how um, people can have been shown this same man over and over again in so many films and so many TV shows and in so many books and still go, uh, you know what, let's still vote for this villain because he's amusing. <laughs> or stands for my values. In which case, what are your values? That makes you a villain. In fact, that makes you a henchman.
1: Excuse me, I would like to say villains from all media, are, uh, you know, from books and TV, are going, hey, we're not that one-dimensional. Yeah, nice, yeah. We're better written than that. Doctor uh, freaking Claw is better written than that.
0: Doctor Evil is better written than that. But um, uh, at least Zorg does get to share a little bit of his philosophy, the idea being that um, he, he uh, creates chaos to thus encourage order. And um, I, I, I dispute with the whole. Um, he said, uh, "Honors killed millions of people; it hasn't saved a single one." If he'd said, "Honor has killed more people than it's saved," that's a truism. Honor hasn't saved a single person is bullshit. There are plenty of firemen out there who would say otherwise. But he gets to deliver some sense of this is why I'm doing these awful evil things. And when, when it's when Ian Holmes says, "You're a monster, Zorg," I know. Uh, He's not gloating there. That's just kind of an acceptance of the part he must play in all this. It's almost introspective, uh, especially since um, uh, Ian Holmes just given him that and your entire empire comes crashing down all because of one little cherry. And even his weird little Dr. Seuss elephant... Pet can't save him. Mm.
2: In fact, that immediately gives the lie to that statement because the honour in Cornelius is yeah. what saves Zorg at that point. True.
0: That's uh, Zorg fails ultimately, and Zorg is evil because he tells himself a lie and then believes it.
2: Mm. But this is this is a villain who exists in a. Uh, An environment without the concept of redemption and this is one of the reasons why I find villain redemption arcs much more interesting and much more essential these days because we need the message that it doesn't matter how bad the thing is that you've done, you can stop doing it and you can have some kind of redemption because as soon as people get to the point where they think oh fuck it what I've done now is so bad I can't possibly come back from that I might as well go for broke
0: this is what bugged me about that whole gaslighting allegation for Kubo and the two, two strings no redemption arc important very important mm. the multipass scene which I, I don't know why that's like I that really know. stuck in people's <laughs> <laughs> heads maybe just say it enough times in a funny way and people it will stick in people's heads I own a Lilu Dallas multipass Thank you. More I,
1: when you asked me if I was writing for the show today, what gift did I respond with?
0: Multi pass. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I think ultimately it's it, it's in that like if you get a ripple of laughter from the audience twice, they'll remember it. You know.
2: She knows it's a multi
0: pass. She knows it's a multi pass. Okay, so Ruby Rod. Oh.
6: This boy is huge like fire. So start melting ladies because the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot. middle name. So tell me, my man, you nervous in the service? Uh, not really. Freeze those knees, my cheese, because in the place and he's on the cake. Yesterday's frog will be tomorrow's prince of
4: Boston Paradise.
6: A hotel of a thousand and one follies, lollies, and ligam A magic fountain full of non-stop wine, women, and new.
0: I think I compared him at some times to Jar Jar Binks, only this is a Jar Jar Binks that I like. Mm. I can, however, completely understand if people were like, this was the point that Fifth Element lost me because they stick with Ruby Rod, Rod like glue for the, next, the second half of this movie. Uh, he's not in every scene, but he permeates every scene.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah.
2: But I think that's quite, for me, that's quite important because he represents a very... Um, if if Flost and Paradise, in terms of the, the hotel and the theatre and the, the atmosphere that they're trying to bring and this sort of very um, posh... And um, elegant image. Uh,
0: not uh, not possibly. What is it? Rich, oh,
2: yeah. wealthy. Indeed. Um, Faddish. And, um, uh, Ruby Rod is Shallow. sort of very much the commercialised front of that. The the mm. you know between particularly the line where he says to Corbin, basically between five and seven p.m. It must be. Um, and it must each, pop, and pop, it pop. It pop, pop, pop. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's like this, you know. There's this time slot, and during this time slot, you will act the way we need you to act to front this thing. And it just it stops the the whole environment of Lost and Paradise becoming too desirable because he makes it seem a little bit. Cheap. <laughs> if you
0: want the paradise, little you got to eat the ruby.
2: <laughs> yeah, kinda.
1: Ugh. Kind of. he, is, he is that tacky pop culture icon. Mm.
2: Yeah. And I think that's, that is is a little bit of a nod to the idea of, of sort of this, this new money, um, young people who are coming out here with trust funds and buying up all the champagne. Mm. And, um, you know, where does that leave the rest of us who, who worked extremely hard for some of our lives um, in order to have all of this parentally inherited money um, to be able to go off and do the things that we want to do?
0: I do like the fact that he is a a sex object and he's pansexual. I mean, manifestly, uh, he he will shag anything that moves. He seems to to gravitate only towards women within the film. You could argue that his portrayal of of being effeminate paints him in a very uh, negative light. But there is also an inherent power in the way he manipulates people.
2: Mm. There's also an inherent innocence about the way he reacts to crisis. The fact that he 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 behaves like a child mm.
4: um,
2: when everything falls apart. I know what you mean about some people might see that and react really negatively to it. I love it. I love his character. I think he's so um, essentially sweet and and well-meaning within the tiny little space of depth that he occupies which Mm. is not very much at all he's totally superficial but he is authentic within that superficiality
0: I think he also gives me license to form an exaggerated version of myself when I am exasperated but need to to make my exasperated nature comedic so as to soften the blow so that when I go (laughs) at someone who understands why I'm doing it, they won't go, right, you can go and fuck yourself.
5: (laughs) You're listening to Radio Cosmos, and it is now 5 p.m. Helm to 108. Yes, sir. Helm 108! Helm to 108. Time to join Ruby Rod and Corbin Dallas, the lucky winner of the Gemini Croquette Contest. Coming at you live from Boston.
6: Paradise! <laughs> Ruby Roderick has for two hours with Drusky carpet and the manager of the Super Green Hotel and Miss Gemini Cracker. in <laughs> person at eight miles and all the here to enjoy the privilege of the unique concert of Miss Plavala Beautiful concert hall, all oh, the universe, a perfect replica of the old opera house. But who cares? To my right, a row of ministers more sinister than sin ministers, to my left, Baby Ray, star, stage, and screen. He's not gonna get much out of this concert because he's stoned up. To who? And here we have Roy Von Baker, king of laser ball. And Recording of a talented voice. <sighs> <sighs> I play the rest of the song after the concert because right now it's time for Carver to say the word of the day. You tell me, my man, you were happy here in the big world. Girl, 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 girl. And now,
0: Japan. So, uh, Neil, what do you think of
1: Ruby Rod? I, you know, like I said, he turned up. It was he irritated me for a couple minutes, and I started. I think it's what is it a Prince song? He starts to sing. Or starts it's, to Lionel it's Lionel Richie. All, all night longer.
0: long, all night.
1: But then you start to realize that performance where he's doing—he is literally doing this motormouth performance, and physically, it's like it's actually kind of impressive. Chris Tucker is one of those actors. I'm sorry to say, you either like him or he gets right on your wick. Yeah.
0: And Which has had- been what his cachet has been like. He, he never um, became famous
1: by being
0: acceptable and palatable. He was always
1: yeah. annoying. And it, it, it's, a, it's a terrible one-trick pony, but it works here and it works in the first rush hour film. <laughs> I
0: knew you were going to say that. Actually, as Beaumont in uh, Jackie Brown, he's perfect. To oh, perfect yes. In that. One, yes, three,
1: I forgot four, about that. I love that film. That's my favourite Tarantino.
0: The Diva Dance... Um, this is uh, not only my favourite part of the film, it's one of my favourite moments in cinema. Uh, it's uh, a combination of visuals and sound and uh, grabbing you. Uh, the, the fact that it actually comes from an existing opera that um, has a genuine beauty to it. It's sung in Italian and looking into the translation, it turns out that uh, Lucia Lemamore... Was uh, in the original opera a woman forced to marry a man against her will, and uh, she ends up stabbing him to death. And the scene we're actually seeing in the fifth element is the madness scene, which is uh, what follows that, where she, um, where she comes out in a bridal gown splattered with blood, and uh, sings about reuniting with her love, Edgardo, who you can actually hear mentioned in the song. Eventually in the opera, she becomes gravely ill and dies, and Edgardo kills himself. It's that kind of story. And as that scene plays out in The Fifth Element, it's measured. You've been getting all of this crazy shit. You literally get Ruby Rod screaming at you and just before it starts. And then it's quiet and calm and sad and very there's a lot of water in in the field to it and it, it it's telling you a story and then things start raising up and it just the sadness inherent to the song speaks volumes of the of the cycles that lilu has been through and i think that's what really resonated with me when lilu's remembering the mega, mega laws destroying uh, the uh, Mandashi ones but that is a parallel with a lot of other repressed memories that she never goes into. The lives she's wanted to lead and has had to lose, the people she's lost along the way, and the wars, and the conflict that she's witnessed every time she goes through this cycle. Then when she kicks ass in what honestly has to be said, like immediately afterwards, The Matrix came out and was like, this is how you do Kung Fu. This is like Buffy levels of dance kicking.
2: Mm. And And we know Mila Jovovich is capable better than that.
0: (laughs) And and then there's no real power to any of the blows. But it's a dance, and it's a snappy dance. But combined with the fact that they then take the opera and kind of zhuzh it up into something that's kind of a a synth electro-funk fusion it makes it extraordinary and i will never not love getting to this point just slowing myself down while i'm watching the film and just drinking in this scene it's it's wonderful for me
1: the the editing as well speaks to just how intre- how you can do quick cuts but without losing anything in a scene yeah you know, a lot of time we talk about quick cuts, and it, it it kills pacing. It kills a lot of stuff. This it doesn't. You instantly just, like you said. And yes, it is dance fighting, but it works because it is dance fighting mm. to this beautiful opera.
2: I think the the cutting between the two as well. What it what it shows. Um by virtue of like i said you've got the flipped colours because the diva is in this sort of pale blue teal mm. and um uh Lilu is obviously all in her orange but she's also surrounded by the red of the room um there's you You know very definitely when you 've gone from scene to scene it it jumps very clearly. Um, from one place to the other. But it, it emphasises, and especially when you've got um, the the brief cuts to Corbin totally captivated by this performance that's going on, in the same way that he is totally captivated by Leeloo, Um it, it really sort of gave me the feeling, more so this time watching it than ever before, that these two women, this was a, a two-person mission. We don't follow the divas' story, but they clearly... I I think they, they probably know each other, they probably um have, have planned this in part together. Lelu went one way and the diva went the other way with the stones, and I I really got the feeling here that basically Leloo is the key and the diva is the case.
4: Mm.
2: And they they are both the the bits that fit together to make this happen.
4: Mm.
2: And especially with that big shot of of I know it's planet floston, but it really looks like Earth behind this idea that the diva is kind of the the earth that has to be saved by she is she is sacrificed to do so but she is representative of the the earth that has to be saved
0: the maiden and the mother Mm. Also, narratively speaking, it means that when Lilu Googles war, that reaction doesn't come out of nowhere. Lilu's mind has not been on this introspective re-examination of how terrible conflict is up until this point. When she starts thinking about that, that then sets her off for when she's uh, uh, hurt and abandoned in the uh, air vent. Um Uh, Lost rather than abandoned. No one's abandoned her, they're looking for her, but she's very much alone. That then leads her on to this full depression plunge when she uh, looks into war. And it's almost like that stuff was in there, it just needed to be unlocked because Mm -hmm. she gets all of those images entirely without context, hundreds of images, but she can contextualise them because she has all of this wisdom going back.
2: Yeah, and she's, it's not as if she's unaware of the idea that humans can be terrible to each other. I mean, if we take the fact that... Um, if we assume she has the memories of the supreme being that was in the sarcophagus that the um, Anders uh, took away in the first place, that she'll have seen war, she'll have seen what humans are capable of doing to each other, what she won't have seen, particularly since she was taken away just before world war 1 she won't have seen the, the technological revolution in war
4: yeah
0: even though whatever time of the 300 years she spent with the mondashi ones which is likely to be a very short amount of time at the very end she would have been with a very peaceful spacefaring race who were unwilling to furnish her with the details on intergalactic warfare which then leads us on to one of the biggest explosions in all of cinema history. Apparently, the um, the, the big shootout that follows this uh, makes it feel more like a Die Hard film than the the fourth and fifth Die Hard films. Which again, Mikey said this in his uh, uh, review. Um, wanting to strike the fifth Die Hard from the record of even being a Die Hard film, because it's not. Whereas this one feels like Corbin's on the edge and can barely hold things together, much like Die Hard. Um, and it's it, effectively, it is a parody of action sequences. It's just, you know, like bullets flying off and, and dudes falling over and exploding. And um, it, it, it kind of feels the way that uh, um, GoldenEye feels... Uh, mm. you know how like GoldenEye's really like um, hard relative to uh, uh, a lot of the earlier Bonds but it also feels like you know all Bond has to do is shake an AK-47 around and six or seven guards will just clatter to the deck immediately <laughs> which
1: excellently parodied in Hot Shots yeah.
0: yeah it just becomes a shooting gallery for him and, and that ultimately is is, is what uh, Corbin goes through because as we've seen his massive list of qualifications he's he's a one man army um, and it's it's not especially um, like you know, insanely impressive action sequence. I remember that the Matrix one, the combination of the lobby fight, then the uh, bullet t- dodge, then the helicopter sequence, then the Agent Smith fight at the end of the Matrix, basically floored me and left me like, I don't know how action movies can best this for a long, long time. I think it ultimately took it up to um, Avengers and then Winter Soldier for me really to feel like yeah they've they've gotten better than this on a smaller scale. Kill Bill uh, was uh, Yan Wu Ping going okay hold my beer I can do better. But the the, the Fifth Element one is just like a, a fun parodic, not especially multi sectional it's it's multi sectional, but you're you're not really worried that Corbin's going to get killed. Uh, your your worry actually comes more with Lilu that when she starts crying and she's been wounded that's when, like, all the fun's over and it's it's really serious. People have gotten hurt, which, again, prepares you for the whole war Googling. Mm. Um, But, folks, I want you to um, try something. Google War on Google Images and you will get much like much of what lilu saw. There was a lot more sort of file footage. She was looking at sort of uh, early 20th century wars and uh, and, and mid 20th century wars. If you Google war now, you get a lot more um, Middle Eastern stuff, a lot more um, current conflicts. But it's the same. If you click through, click, 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 click. Occasionally, you'll get a promotional uh, cl- uh, clip of Shadow of War uh, or um, God of War because we have commercialized war in a way that wouldn't mm. turn up when Lelou went looking for it. Um, but if you look for love and Google Images love, I'm sorry to say that you don't get lots and lots of shots of examples of love in context. What you get is lots and lots of stylized hearts. And people I was going to say, is this safe search
1: on and off? <laughs> yeah,
0: very good. Um, no, not that kind of love. Uh, it's it's so much harder to define love in mm. relative to, to how to define war to the point where it's abstract to us as a species. And this was not like a big thing I was preparing. It just struck me while I was going through on my notes to just t- take a look. And I think that might actually be quite a... Um, quite a deep thing about us as, as a people that um we all know what war is a lot of us aren't entirely
1: sure what love is oh no no sorry i'm gonna spoil it you know what you got stuck
4: in <laughs> thank you oh,
1: well i had to nose. let it out
0: but oh. but yeah the the scene itself is heartbreaking because uh, much like in wonder woman um when and this is something that Luke Besson wanted. When Leeloo loses faith in humanity, when she sees what we can do, what we are capable of, you agree with her, mm. and it induces despair in us, the audience. And that's that's when the film really kicks into gear. Up until that point, it's a great fun, like space opera, fantasy pantomime. Everyone's wearing silly costumes, but this is when it's like hammering home the core. Uh, of it to you and there is a a really great bit of business with the stones where they're like um you get some real tension going with that last match and like you know the 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 ridiculous ticking time bomb on, on it but when lilu drops it feels so impossible to come back from and that's what depression is when you're there you can't see a way out. You can't see a way to, uh, to to just go, oh, it's fine. Someone will say the right words to me and I'll be fine. It's not a case of I'm just sad. There's many different kinds of depression, but some of them are so crippling that you maybe won't ever shake them. Mm. And, and
2: it, it's, it's emphasised by um, when he's trying to explain to her about love and she says she can't feel it that's i that's something that I've said about depression before it's depression is not the same for everybody but certainly part of my experience of it is when you see wonderful things around you but you can't feel them
0: hmm. <sighs> just as a sideline by the way uh zorg uh, succeeds with his technology in saving his ass but is bested by honor um, at least a twisted version of honor that the Mega uh, uh push forwards with um which is actually what Zorg uh, sees Honor as. Honor is the decision to Kill and destroy all of your enemies Because it will bring honor on your own tribe um, But that's Part of what makes us so sick As a people. The the idea That we, we can perform these unspeakable Acts uh, because we Feel like it's the right thing to Do. Whereas the genuine right thing to do it seems a lot harder for us
2: mm, Absolutely, you've got to do it every day but this, I think the, the destruction of the um, the sphere is, is done in such a way, it almost seems calm but again it without wanting to spoil um, it, it does it put me in mind of the, the Wonder Woman finale, mm. the idea that basically they flood it with light It's darkness, they flood it with light, which renders it inert. They Mm. don't blow it up, they don't, um, you know, they don't hit it with as much fire, they've already hit it with as much firepower as they had, and it failed. Mm. Um, But by flooding it with love and flooding it with light, that makes it unable to do its shadowy, destructive thing anymore.
0: (laughs) And when Corbyn has to say, I love you, it, it would be very easy for most of us ho- hanging around with Lilu to actually say that and, and feel like we mean it uh, because there is so much to love about her. Um, but I love the way that Bruce Willis hesitates. It's he, he actually he gets that he can't just say it. He has to feel it. Yeah. And he actually searches himself and asks, is this true? Is this just an infatuation? You know, am I just attracted to her a lot or is is this a case that I genuinely value her in in a way that as far as I can tell, because I don't think I've ever actually felt it before, certainly not with my ex-wife, is love.
2: (laughs) Mm. But again, it's it's not even so important that he feels it. What's important is that she feels it. For her to feel it, it has to be real real it has to be authentic it, it not a well I really feel like this is love but it's actually a flash in the pan and it's, it's going to go mm. away in the morning kind of thing um, but it, it, it made me think when she says about I don't know love um, and he's trying to tell her all the things that love means to evoke it in her and I love as well that idea that you've got the air blows um, rain falls fire burns thing um, and life, which is what Leela is, loves. That's the action that activates the element of life. Um, but it, may, it reminded me of the, um, some of the closing panels in the Dark Phoenix saga from the Uncanny X-Men. Mm. And there's a quote from uh, issue 136 where um, Jean is basically about to die... And she's, and she's trying to maintain the Dark Phoenix. She's trying to maintain the power and the anger and the fury and, and keep herself in the dark side. And she says, uh, she says Dark Phoenix knows nothing of love. And Cyclops' response is, For love of the X-Men, you sacrificed your life. For love of me, you resurrected yourself. For love of the whole universe, you almost died a second time to save it. You know nothing of love. Jean, you are love. And that, when I watched that ending of fifth element is the bit that always pops into my mind at that tail end there Lu is love, she embodies it she just has to be able to let it flow for it to do the thing it needs to do. And the
0: fact that she moves in cycles and has to do it every 5,000 years means that no matter how much shit goes down she has to, despite ourselves, continue to love us.
2: Mm. Yeah and you can see why the echoes of that were in
4: Wonder Woman, mm. yeah.
2: yeah. She is love. She brings love. And that, the, the point of that being what will save, not hate, not fury, not, not anger, not um, any of those emotions that are, are self-defensive, to love somebody so that they do not want to cause harm or pain is the only real way that you can make sure that that causing of harm and pain doesn't happen
0: Hmm. so that's the fifth element there's um there's a very deliberate moon juxtaposition and this time Lyra, Lyra didn't get it before but this time she went oh my god I've just realized that the moon is a previous attempt at this one and uh, from the sounds of it, the dark planet this time got a lot closer than the moon. How many miles away is the moon? Is it 200? six? Two two
2: oh. 238,000 and some.
0: Yeah, the moon is usually 238,000 and some. This one got how, how long? No, is it sixty-four or something? Isn't something it? around the sixty-four yeah. miles. That's going to do terrible impact.
2: things to the time. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's, it's actually a really sad ending because Earth is doomed <laughs> unless they get something to tow it back out <laughs> a little bit further. And we probably have the technology for that. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that's, that's going to mess with things. But um, it's it doesn't matter about the aftermath of that really because you know, they'll figure it out as as usual. That they're, they're humans, they'll they'll muddle it out. Um, it's the fact that the moon, it stands there as a symbol that this has happened before and will happen again. And there's something really comforting about that. That means that during the darkest of times, you can look forward to things coming back around again. That they, Even though if it feels like it's never going to end and it's going to take um, from this point. Let me just check. Uh, 1,114 more days to actually end Uh, but it will end and there'll be another cycle of something more hopeful and then it'll come back around to something more despairing and then more hopeful and then despairing and it almost seems like it would be more natural for evil to win every other time regarding uh, in in the cycles of the fifth element because it's a two party system (laughs) what you've
2: you've got to remember though is that the way cycles work it's not a now this now that now this now that it's a breath the cycle is the whole thing yeah the the despair is the out breath and or it might even be the other way around uh, is the out breath and the the hope is the in breath but you have to have the whole thing for it to be the cycle it's not a coin flipping over it's one rotating
4: yeah
0: So yeah, in summation, The Fifth Element is a seemingly shallow and silly space opera movie with, um, as I said earlier, one of the most profound dichotomies of uh, existence, just nestled at the core, which is examined uh, in brief but sharp detail at the end. And at the same time, it's, it doesn't come out of nowhere. There are hints throughout of human frailty and our vast potential to be crappy and also good. We're going to end on Eric Serra's... Uh, Little Light of Love, which is uh, you know, Eric Serra's fantastic score throughout this, to the point where no other music really works with The Fifth Element. I mean, like I have said, I've tried with um, uh, uh, Blade Runner, but I've tried before with other things. It, it requires the very French Eric Serra to uh, uh, to, to give it that flavour.
2: Mm. Although I'm now thinking a bit foreigner over that last scene, Mike. <laughs> yeah. I I know what that oh, is. Nice. Well, when she when she drops into the the cab, I've been waiting for,
0: for a, a girl. girl. Okay, everyone, rescore the entire fifth <laughs> element just with foreigner, and uh, oh yeah, have Gary Oldman turn up to Dirty White Boy.
2: Yes. Absolutely. You're going to get cold as ice in there somewhere.
0: And hot-blooded, check it and see. That was The Fifth Element. Next week, a series of unfortunate events. That's both the movie, which I really like, and the TV show on Netflix, which I really like. And after that, it's Thor. Ragnarok. So this is going to be like two weeks' worth of crazy, colourful space opera. Wow. Getting you in the mood with The Fifth Element, yeah? of those people who are actually able to find it so where can people find you neil
1: you can find me over on youtube at the YouTube, uh, youtube.com forward slash the kid Dog. i've been alex sure
2: i've been sharon Shaw.
1: and school's out <laughs>